This episode of The Ish is sponsored in part by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day trial at audibletrial.com forward slash The Ish. Again, visit audibletrial.com forward slash The Ish for your free audiobook. Life is complicated. It's layered. Religion, love, politics, there are no easy answers. If you, like me, are drawn to the middle, whether by chance or by choice, this is for you. From Milieu Media Group, welcome to The Ish, a podcast from the liminal spaces of life. I'm Cameron Deason Hammond, and this is season two, episode five, Psychedelic-ish with Michael Horowitz. When I was 15 and a lonely book nerd, I befriended the writer and archivist Michael Horowitz. Michael was archivist to Timothy Leary, 1960s psychedelic drug guru, and the man Richard Nixon called the most dangerous man in America. But Michael was also father to my high school icon, actress Winona Ryder. I discovered Michael and his collection of rare books through an interview I read with Winona. I thought I might reach out to him and see what rare books he had collected that I could read. I wrote Michael a letter and he responded. And soon after, we were exchanging letters and ideas and books. I've mentioned in other episodes my complicated relationship to my father During my high school years, Michael was my encourager. He was a champion of my writing and has continued to be over the years. It's a strange, very personal story, and I wanted to take a risk and share it with you in this episode. We talk about everything from the 1960s to government conspiracies and to his experience of having a celebrity as a daughter. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. This is my interview with Michael Horowitz. Michael, thank you for making time to be on my podcast. Oh, absolutely. It's my first podcast. Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad to share this experience with you for the first time. You know, I was thinking about you and I was thinking about like when I met you and how important your friendship was to me in terms of me becoming a writer and in terms of me thinking of myself as a writer. And I thought it could be cool, you know, just to talk about how that happened because <laughs> it's a crazy story. And he, uh, the details were escaping me. We talked about it before. Yeah. Well, I didn't tell you the details. I think some connection with my daughter. No, it wasn't. In fact, so you had thought that I connected with Winona through my mom's company because she had that fashion PR company, but it wasn't that actually, Michael. It was a totally different, it was all my doing. So the way that it happened was that I was a lonely 15-year-old and a big book nerd, and I was reading an interview with Winona in which she was talking about you and talking about your book company, Flashback Books. And she was talking about how you collected and sold these rare books about the 60s and about the beat generation. And those were my heroes at the time. So I thought, let me just call them up and see what they got. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that's how it started. And I was working on a paper about 
Jack Kerouac, and I called you and said, you know, do you have any books for me? And we started to talk, and eventually I got up the courage to tell you that I was a poet, and you invited me to send you some of my poems, and you read them, and you were so kind and encouraging. And, you know, a big part of that for me was that I had no relationship with my father, and there was no adult in my life who had the bandwidth to say, hey, keep going, you know, hey, you're pretty good at this, keep going, and you did that for me. So thank you. That was big. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, clearly, you know, you've really gone far from that point, and congratulations on your thank career you. to date. Thank you. I'm sure there'll be much more. I'm looking forward to hearing about it, reading about it, listening to it. Thank you. So tell me about how you became a writer. We can talk a little bit about the Leary thing as well, the Tim Leary connection, but I'd love to hear how you got started as a lover of books and a writer. Well, I guess I was a book nerd too. And books, obviously, open worlds. But I got really interested in the way a story could move me and the way a story was told. I also, you know, I'm very critical of writers, and I'm constantly <laughs> thinking, that could be better, or that's not very interesting. So I got to a point where I started, like, scanning books instead of reading them. Mm-hmm. And I got good at that. But there were some books one had to When I was younger, I just read them, and they moved me. And I thought, well, maybe I could write one myself. Mm-hmm. And I started writing uh, poems first. And then um, in the 60s, I thought I had an idea for a, um, like a contemporary political novel about the 60s and mm-hmm. the social changes that were happening. That was the beginning of the 60s. Then I started living the 60s. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was living the 40s and 50s also, mm-hmm. but I wasn't aware that I was living them because yeah. I was. it was all through the you know, what I was watching on television and what I thought was the reality that was being projected. Yeah. Early in the middle 60s kind of changed that for a lot of us. And that was a generational shift that basically the consciousness was changed. Yeah. The neurological possibilities Mm -hmm. were enlarged and the worldview was increased to an enormous extent. But there was no language for it. And we were kind of just saying, oh, wow, all the time. (laughs) It was kind of a spiritual awakening more Mm -hmm. than anything else. That's when I turned to writers. Before that, I'd been reading fiction and poets. But then I started turning to writers like Aldous Huxley and uh, Alan Watts, uh, who had this larger view of things. It was like a view beyond just being alive on the planet. It was like being part of something even bigger than the planet. Yeah. And human activity and politics seemed really, well, kind of crazy when you have that bigger vision of things. Mm-hmm. And you see people stumbling around and yourself, and everything is going into categories. We're always categorizing things, political parties, social movements, interactions, and now it's even the internet has broken that into a million pieces, yeah. and they're all active. Yeah. I mean, nobody really understands the internet, except possibly some of the visionary writers back in the '60s, like Marshall McLuhan, mm-hmm. Timothy Leary, all this Huxley, Orwell, more than anybody. Yes, those things were coming out, and there were some people who were talking about it in ways that many of us responded to. Timothy Leary talked about it from the point of view of psychology and science. Yeah. And then he brought in spirituality. Right. And it was Tibetan Buddhism 
that was, you know, the main meme at the time. It immediately makes me want to say the 60s were rejected largely. And a lot of people think they should have been. We're talking about the social change and mind expansion of the 60s. But we didn't know what to do with it exactly. So we turned to writers. They were like kind of visionaries from the previous generation. The Beats were some of those writers we turned to. And one of our iconic encounters, yours and mine, was at City Lights. We yes. were City Lights together. We did. I was going to say that I think it's so interesting that there was this connection between you in the 60s and what you're describing with getting really interested in writers who were interested in opening their minds and expanding their minds and how that resonated with me and with my generation in the 90s. And I feel like a lot of that also had to do with like, you know, Winona's appeal I told you I read the interview with her. She talked about you. She was so obviously informed by writers and writing. You know what I mean? And there was something in that kind of thinking person's movie star that was so appealing to my generation. And I wonder, like, why you think that is. And I mean, like, the 60s and the late 80s, like, that's a generation between us, right? So, I mean, but it was couldn't have been more different, right? We had Clinton in the White House, Things were kind of pretty good, basically, you know, economically, but there was this yearning. I mean, this is my generation, right? Gen X. There was this yearning for like deeper meaning and like expanding our boundaries. And and I really identified with that and I identify with that kind of spiritual quest. And that was a lot of like what my writing was about and what we talked about. So I wonder what you think about why there was that connection between the two generations. Yeah, the late 80s, something was happening then. It was the Reagan years, but there was a lot of pushback against the 60s that happened in the 80s. But then there was a kind of a second wave, of which might be called the rave generation, yeah. Generation X, yeah. in the 90s. And that was like a second coming of yeah. the psychedelic period. Mm-hmm. And it was very hopeful and very optimistic. Yeah. Um, and it was also tied to music and dance mm-hmm. and the idea of a community and there was a love vibe that came in out of the some of the really bad stuff that was going down in the 80s. It was just a struggle between the two cultures. One thing that always happens is the drugs that are popular become criminalized. That's a tendency in this country. Yeah. Rather than being looked at scientifically, they're criminalized right away. People in power are denigrating the March for Our Lives. Yeah. You know, like the kids, they don't know. They can't. Tim Leary and the other hand said, they're the ones we should be listening exactly. to. Exactly. They're the future. Do you think and we're listening to them now? Do you think that the March for Our Lives is hopeful in terms of listening to kids again? Or what do you think? It's extremely hopeful. One reason it's hopeful is that it's being, you know, criticized by people in power. Right. So you and, know it's working. Right wing media and so on. Yeah. Right and left are still the main polarization. But there's so many different facets of each side right, of that you can't really call yourself, you know, you just broadly identify with one or the other, but it's really, there's so many niches in there. And another thing about, we're really jumping around here, but today, <laughs> with the last five years, has seen a renaissance of interest in the, the actual science of psychedelic experience. Oh, really? Yes. And this time it's coming through with science. 
you know, MRIs of the brain, things like that. They have the scientific tools now to see exactly what's going on with synapses and neural pathways in the brain. And right now there's a generation who are exploring this in a little more precise ways. There's still, it isn't so much the media, but it's like, it's, it's in the laboratories and it's in the groups that are getting together. You know, everybody has their voice and yeah. it's the age of information and the stream of data that's coming in all the time. It makes your mind work faster just to keep up with it. Sure. It can also inundate you and, you know, it needs a greater intelligence, not just, you know, an expansion of consciousness, right. but a greater intelligence, intelligence to go with it. To work, to work with it, yeah. And, you know, I, I was thinking about you also, and we talked about this, and I know you can't talk a lot about this, but about your work with Timothy Leary and some ongoing projects that you've got in the mix but there's an interest, you know, there was that Netflix series that was produced about, was it the CIA experiments on CIA agents with psychedelics? It was called Wormwood, I think, is the show that, yeah. It was a brilliant uh, portrayal. Yeah, you saw very, it. Uh, very dramatic and very, uh, yes. I learned things from that. Uh, and I thought I knew everything about that because I, you know, I've always kind of been interested in that. So will you tell, so because like people listening probably don't know really anything about Timothy Leary, could you talk about that briefly? Just catch us up to speed about both why he's famous and why he was on the run and why you were his archivist when you were and kind of maybe a little bit about why you think it's relevant now, if you don't mind. Well, he was very influential to the Fidelic generation Yeah, because he was very articulate, both in his writings and in his public talks. And he was out there with his books. He wrote four books in the 60s. He lectured all over the place. And they didn't like the message, which was basically anti-establishment. It was think for yourself, question authority, which is basically the message that he continued putting out there the rest of his life. And authority didn't like that. They wanted to control people's opinions and their mindsets and so on. But the writers, the beat writers, the rock and roll writers and musicians, the artists of the generation were the other people who had a tremendous influence. And they were turned on. We were the turned on generation, actually. And it was too much for American society. And not just American society. American society is probably the freest society, but it was not free enough mm-hmm. for what was coming down. And the war was such a big thing because, you know, to me, the most important slogan of the 60s was make love, not war. Mm-hmm. And that sums up that generation and love in all its forms. War being like ridiculous, like insane. We felt like the country was an insane asylum mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, the war dominated mm-hmm. and the kids you know, the rock and roll musicians and the, the writers, poets of the time, a lot of them were the Beats who were still around and they had a huge influence on the 60s. Mm-hmm. The Beats were really, had a relatively small influence in the 50s, but, you know, it all grew with the neurological changes that came with psychedelic drugs, particularly LSD, which was... God in the pill. Which is what Tim Leary is known for, right? So Timothy Leary was known for experiments with psychedelics. He came from Switzerland and came from scientists, Bob Canvas. But Leary realized that this was an incredible product 
Mm-hmm. So, among other things, it was a material thing right. that enabled people to get out of their mindset and transcend the limits that we lived under. But to do anything about that, though, to integrate into society was a real challenge, and it was very, very difficult. In fact, people went to jail over it. Government really did everything to stop it. It seems like it's happening again. It happens in cycles. The 60s are the period America wants to forget, but the 60s were more successful in, say, stopping the war sooner Mm -hmm. and bringing it back, changes in society. Now, Leary believed in the, the education of people, that he thought there should be learning centers for this new experience because it was available in the form of a pill mm-hmm. and later in the form of a little piece of paper, a mm-hmm. blotter paper, that a lot of people could more quickly potentiate to this greater reality. Mm. And the reality is not just. All the um, movements that we see today were kind of born during the late 60s. Right now, there's nothing bigger than climate change and the forces against considering it important and those that feel like, you know, the survival of the planet is at stake. It it couldn't be more stark than it is today. And that fight was beginning in the 60s and with some visionarism in the 50s before. So So how did you personally get involved with Timothy Leary? How did you meet him? Well, because I was came from a literary background, and mm-hmm. books meant so much to me, and I actually, when I was still in college, I worked in the Rare Book Library at New York University. Oh, wow. I collected books, and I bought and sold books, because I knew the books that were important, the books that were valuable because of their what they were saying, and especially books that were new, like William Burroughs and Allen Ginsberg, the Beat Generation writers, and the visionary writers of that time. And that, of course, there were those back to the 19th century, 18th, 17th, they were always visionary writers. But there were more of them, and they were like, the media was bringing them to our attention. Mm -hmm. Okay, in the late 60s, I started to collect the books. The psychedelic movement was like my tribe, Mm -hmm. beginning in the uh, mid-60s. And I came to San Francisco from New York, I had to be in San Francisco. Mm. You know, I, I really never went back. Yeah. Except for certain, you know. Occasionally. On, it was on the Lower East Side right. in Greenwich Village. But California, especially Northern California, was where this new society was, um, you know, cooking. And I was living near North Beach. I was going to bookstores. I was reading. The writers I was now reading were writing about the new consciousness. And all... And, other aspects that came with it. I was working in a rare bookstore in 1970 when another rare book guy working in LA, I was talking to him on the phone about our businesses we were working for. And I found out that he was collecting psychedelic literature, just Mm -hmm. like I was. Mm -hmm. And then there was another person came to the bookstore and he mentioned he was doing it. We thought maybe we'd merge our libraries and actually have a private library of the literature of psychedelic experience, which we were discovering was very, very rich in the 19th century also. Yes, yes. French writers, the, the Hashish Club, Baudelaire and mm-hmm. Gautier, Rambeau and Verlaine, and, and in America, Fitzhugh Ludlow. Mm-hmm. Fitzhugh Ludlow was like a hippie 100 years before the hippies. He was a teenage experimenter, and he wrote the first book of 
on drugs in America. Anyway, we had the library. We opened it up in North Beach. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, Allen Ginsberg came over because wow. they heard about it. Wow. Because we had their books in the library featured, you know, behind <laughs> glass. And, you know, their books, which were, like, not worth much in right. those days, and right. they were everywhere. We treated them with a great deal of respect. And they came by and gave us our their blessings. And shortly after we opened the library, Timothy Leary, for the first time, after a whole decade of kind of being a provocateur mm-hmm. and a public face of psychedelics, you know, an advocate, but an advocate who, you know, really was talking responsibly about the best way of having individuals and society learn to raise their consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, he even appeared before Congress 1966, mm-hmm. and he just called for, again, educational centers, the way people had to, you know, to get a driving license, yeah. they had to study driving and pass tests and be licensed. So he thought the same thing should happen with psychedelics. He thought the social structure could handle that, but they couldn't. Because the ideas that came out of it were the war is insane. Mm. All war is insane. Yeah. Got to be a better way. And we know the way. <laughs> but that was like small groups. And Okay. In 1970, Nixon was in power. And he decided to silence Leary and silence the counterculture. Yeah. So they arranged. Oh, Leary was announced. He had, he got a Supreme Court victory on a marijuana case, and he announced that he was going to run for governor and challenge Reagan. Wow. It was actually very unpopular in California. Right. Except small group. And um, when Reagan found out that he was going to be in the race, he had a judge in Orange County put give him 10 years for two marijuana roaches that were found in the ashtray of a car mm-hmm. that he was driving. Mm-hmm. It was like 0.0025 grams. Yeah. And he got 10 years for that. And bail was revoked wow. on the basis of his writing. That's when Allen Ginsberg entered the scene and, you know, on the freedom of speech issue. And a lot of liberals and left-wingers came to Tim's defense. Rosemary, his wife, held benefits for him. We went to one. She knew that there was an escape plan if he didn't get paroled, Mm -hmm. or at least had a chance to fight his case on appeal on the outside. They didn't want him out. They wanted her to punish him severely. They were hatching an escape plan already. Mm. And not knowing this, my partner and I went to the benefit, talked to her, really just wanted to talk to her about his situation. And then she said, when she found out we had a library, she said, you know, his archives are setting up in his house in Berkeley, the Berkeley Hills. We're a little worried about them. Could you take care of them? Can you bring them to your library? It was like, wow. wow. You know, the Leary archives. So we went up to her house a week later, and there was like, six file cabinets of the all the essential research on psychedelics wow. the, again scientific part all the correspondence tim was at the center of it his correspondence with the european group with with the southern california people the people in boston new york it was like the underground but it was a science the underground of psychiatry 
because that's, it really entered as a mind drug. That's how it entered the culture. We took the archives, and as soon as we did, our lives changed totally. Wow. We found out two weeks later, Tim was asking if we could visit him in prison. Wow. And we, you know, he was like really high profile at the time. Mm-hmm. He was going to be even higher profile later when he escaped. We were thrilled. It was a dream come true. We had, I mean, we had a small library of maybe a thousand books, and suddenly we had his archives. Yeah. But we kind of knew it was dangerous to have his archives. We we visited him in prison, and I've actually I've done three interviews, and I'm doing the fourth and final interview of my years with Leary when he was in prison and in exile, Mm -hmm. and facing grand juries. And how I got deeper and deeper involved in that mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. I'm telling the story in a series of interviews right now mm-hmm. that are appearing on the Timothy Leary Archives.org. Yeah. And my part of it really is 70 to 76. Wow. So you met him, you had the archive, and then that kind of began a very deep relationship with him that went on for years. Especially through the first half of the 70s. But it continued that long. Yeah. You know, I've, our families are close. He's, you know, the godfather of my daughter. I've edited his books. I wrote a bibliography. And so, I'm kind of like a, an expert. People come yeah. to me for information about him yeah. and stuff. So, so it's, I, it's a role I've, I've embraced. The God, the godfather piece. So we're kind of running out of time. And, and I kind of wanted to maybe close with yeah. this. So when you mentioned that, that Tim Leary was Winona's godfather, I think that that was also mentioned in that article that I read when I first heard about your book company and how I found you and how we connected and that idea of having a godfather really like took root in me. And as I told you over email, I always thought of you as like my literary godfather. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it's such a special, important thing for me, you know, in my life. And I'm sure in, you know, for her, it was as well to have that kind of a person to kind of look up to. But yeah, but that's how I've always thought of you. And I've always thought of like, you know, the psychedelic movement in the 60s and your experience and what I've learned from you and also from Cindy, knowing your wife a little bit, you know, is that it was so essentially like a spiritual quest, a quest for intelligence, mind expansion, knowledge, but also a spiritual quest. And that, again, that whole idea of the godfather, that it could be something literary, you know, and psychedelic, I think is really is really inspiring and really cool. People who are of different generations, like we are, but connections are made, psychic connections are made. And in a way, the, the godfather, goddaughter, godson thing is, you know, you know, you meet people who are older than you, a, you know, a couple of generations even, or a couple, younger, and yet you make a connection with them that's as good or better than yeah. your contemporaries. Yeah. And there's something really exciting about that. When you meet somebody who usually they notice you, the younger generation, person the younger generation, like sees something in you that they respond to. And then it's, it's very flattering. And then you want to really keep it on the right level. And when you find that level, it's like a, another member of your, like one, like one of your children, yeah. but it's not your child. So yeah. you don't have that history that parents and children have together. Right. It's like a special relationship. It's like a daughter, but it's not your natural daughter. Right. But speaking of natural daughters. Speaking of natural daughters. For us as writers, and just as you did, yeah. and like that, and responded to that. Yeah. And I think she's going to 
she's always written and reads a lot, and I think she probably will end up writing a really good memoir someday. I hope she does, yes. (laughs) I hope she does. Michael, thank you so much for being a part of this. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for calling. Absolutely. You You too. uh, Bye, Michael. Have a great day. Have a great day. Bye. Sometimes mentors appear in the most unlikely places at the most unlikely times, but always it's just when we need them. And that has been my experience over the long relationship that I've had with this dear man, Michael Horowitz, who is so important to me. And I hope that our conversation illuminated how and why he is so important to me. I plan to have him back because he has a ton of wisdom about everything, as you probably have noticed. And I'd love to talk with him about some other topics that might come up as the show progresses. As always, check our show notes for this week's book recommendations. And we'll see you next time. This episode of The Ish was produced and edited by Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by Heather Hale. To see more of her work, visit halehouse.co. Our theme music is from my 2016 album, Words Don't Bleed, produced by Jay Snyder. Check it out on iTunes. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review The Ish on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And follow us online at The Ish on Twitter and at The Ish Podcast on Facebook and Instagram.